Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. Hear, Hear God's holy and infallible word. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, the Father, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the glove of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another, but do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, so let us begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of what Jesus did and said. May it be illuminated to our hearts by your spirit. May it have its full work in our lives. May it draw us to your son that we may have life in his name. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I named this sermon, Can I Get a Witness? Mainly because that's a catchy name for a sermon. But because this whole passage is about witnesses. The different witnesses that Jesus draws on to validate who he is in the message and ministry that he is doing. It's not a problem that we don't have in our own age. If we think about our time, we live in a time of Too much information, too many sources, too many witnesses, too many narratives, always bombarding us day in and day day out. I mean, just think about the idea of journalistic integrity. It used to be common practice for a journalist to get a tip about a story, a first witness, and then to go and to investigate it further to get multiple witnesses to corroborate what really happened. Of course, now when we see stories that we don't like, we just write them off as fake news. 
or the stories we like, we just share without any sense of needing to verify if they're true. And it's only exasperated through social media and partisan politics and all of the things that cause these messages to be bombarding in front of us each day. But we have a witness problem in our society. We have uncredible witnesses. We have a lack of witnesses. We don't really even care about witnesses. We just want our biases to be confirmed. This is what's happening as Jesus has been interacting with these religious leaders. If you remember, this is coming at the end of his interchange. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem and he had healed this invalid man who was waiting by the side of a pool. Jesus shows him mercy. He heals him. He's made well and he tells him to take up his bed and to walk. And the religious leaders of the day got very upset with Jesus for two reasons. One, because he healed him on the Sabbath. And two, because he told this man to do work on the Sabbath by taking up his bed and walking. In their mind, Jesus had been violating their understanding of Sabbath keeping. Furthermore, in the passage just before this, Jesus is beginning to equate himself with God, calling him his father and referring to him as the son. And so Jesus comes to this next section and he draws a defense. It's almost as if he's in a courtroom and he's going to call up the various witnesses that bear testimony to who he is. The big question for us is where do we find answers to our questions? Where do we find true authority? Where do we find validation for the claims in our lives? And how do we know that those claims are correct? As I said before, we often are less concerned about the validity of the claim. We're more concerned about whether or not it already agrees with what we presume. And that's what's happening as Jesus is trying to push back the presuppositions of these religious leaders. They aren't willing to just take his testimony at face value. Jesus has transitioned from talking about the Son and the Father and now begins to talk in his first person, beginning in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the one, the will of him who sent me. Jesus is again doubling down. If anybody was mistaken about whether or not he was the son he was referring to in the beginning of this conversation, Jesus makes it clear here. And in beginning in verse 31, here he draws on this idea of the need for witnesses. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If somebody comes up and tells you something, depending on how trustworthy you believe that person is, that's not enough to validate the claim they're making. 
This is a principle that's throughout Scripture, and we can see it back in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. This principle of needing multiple witnesses is to protect righteous judgment. It's to give people the assurance that the the story that's being told is accurate. It's not just a he he said, she said situation. Multiple witnesses have come. At least two or three is what is commanded here in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And it was the practice in Israel to always, as they've adjudicated cases, to have multiple witnesses because of this requirement in the law. And so Jesus presents to us four witnesses. Four witnesses. The first witness is John. He points to John, verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Okay, just stopping for a second. What was John's witness to the truth? If we have been reading through John, or if you're familiar with John the Baptist, here is what John said in John chapter 1. John the Baptist says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So these same men who are interacting with Jesus sent people to John to ask him, who are you? John confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And are you a prophet? And he said, No. And so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the one, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Just as the prophet Isaiah said. They said, why are you baptizing? And he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. The next day, Jesus walks by John the Baptist, and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's testimony that he was not the Christ, but was one who was coming to prepare the way of the coming of the Christ is true. This is what Jesus is saying. He was the first one who showed up and began to proclaim that Jesus was coming. And when he saw Jesus, he said, this is the one who was to come. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says that they were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. They were willing to listen to John because he seemed to have some authority. He seemed to be important. He was doing this ministry of this kind of prophet that looks like Elijah out in the wilderness. He was drawing the hearts of God's people to be prepared for the coming of God's salvation. There was this great anticipation at the time that the Messiah would come soon, and so they rejoiced that John was preparing the way until his message struck too close to home. And the things that John said and the people that John pointed to, like Jesus, were inconvenient for the religious leaders. 
And we find out later that he becomes imprisoned and is ultimately executed by a wicked king. But that was the first witness. And Jesus says, look, I'm just telling you about a man. And I don't even receive my testimony from men, but I'm telling you because you've seen it. You've heard him. This is the tangible witness. But far greater than that, verse 36, is the testimony of the works that the Father has sent me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. Jesus has been publicly doing works both in Galilee and here in Jerusalem. Remember, he turned water into wine. He healed a man's son who was near death. And just before this interchange, he heals this invalid man on the Sabbath. These are the works that the Father has sent him to do. There is no explanation for these works outside of God being with him. It's the confession that Nicodemus makes to him in John chapter 3. We know that you come from God because nobody could do the things you do unless God is with him. Tangible witness. The works he is doing, the ability to do miraculous things that nobody else can explain, bear witness that the Father has sent him, that he is who he's claiming to be. Jesus introduces the third witness in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. And now Jesus turns the tables on the religious leaders and instead of just defending himself, begins an indictment against them. To tell them who they truly are. His voice they've never heard. His form they'd never seen, and they do not have the Father's words abiding in them. Not only is the Father a witness to his Son, but they don't know anything about the Father. And he knows this because they don't believe in him. They don't believe the one whom the Father has sent The fourth witness Jesus draws on is the scriptures. You search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These men, their entire life is you know, circling around studying teaching, understanding, applying God's Word in their lives. Jesus says they are looking to the Scriptures that they might have eternal life in them. But they're all about the One who is to come. They all pointed ahead to Jesus. They all bear witness about who He is. And as they have studied the Scriptures, as they have tried to gain eternal life, their pursuit was in vain because they've refused to come to the one who can give them life. These are the four witnesses that Jesus calls in his case against the religious leaders of his day. The outward testimonies of people and actions and 
those who will bear witness before the judgment of these men at God's throne. And then Jesus turns to another section here, beginning in verse 41, where he's contrasting himself and the idea of false glory. You see, when Jesus shows up on the scene, there have been many Messiah figures showing up, claiming to be that promised one who God would send. None of them ended up working out. They all died and they all went away. But when these false Messiah figures showed up, they came seeking honor and glory from men. They, seek, they were seeking to build for themselves a large following and a crowd and to do all of the things for themselves that Jesus is not going to do. And not only that, Jesus is directing this accusation towards these religious leaders who are seeking to be honored by the people who want to be important. Jesus tells us in verse 41, I don't receive glory from people. And I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, but you've not received me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. This idea of a man coming to receive glory from people is much more palatable. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek glory that comes from only God? (coughs) Probably the most pointed statement in all of this interchange. You can't believe You can't believe what the Father has said. You can't believe the Scriptures for what they truly say. You can't believe the works I am doing. You can't believe John the Baptist. And you can't believe me because your whole life is centered around seeking after self-glory, praises of men, instead of glory that only comes from God. And if this isn't enough for Jesus and his case and his four witnesses, he brings in this surprise witness at the end. The death blow, the final nail in the coffin for these men. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. It might seem a bit odd to us that Jesus ends this interchange by drawing Moses as this final witness, and yet that's because we're so distant from the context of what's happening here. Moses is the highest possible standard of what it would mean to understand God's word. He was the great prophet that was raised up to bring God's people out of Israel. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he is the ultimate authority on all things. Not only that, some of these religious believers would not view all Scripture equally, but would primarily have in view those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The books of Moses as being the most important, the most authoritative, the way to know truly what God has said about 
who he is and what he requires of us. And yet this is where Jesus goes. And he says that Moses will be the one who accuses them before the Father. They don't actually believe Moses. Because if they were to believe Moses, they would believe him. It's one of these dynamics that we find ourselves in sometimes as we read Scripture. We wonder, why did they do that? Why did Israel grumble and complain against Moses? Why weren't they satisfied with the manna in the wilderness? Don't they get it? Don't they see God's hand at work in their lives? Why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit? I wouldn't have done that. Uh, But now we're failing to see ourselves for who we truly are in the depth of our sin. Because when we see God's people in the Old Testament failing to live up to God's standard, failing to be thankful, to offer the worship that God requires, we're seeing ourselves. These men wouldn't have believed Moses. And they won't believe Jesus either. He mentions Moses as one who wrote about Christ. And there's certainly a lot in those first five books that point ahead to the Messiah who is to come. Perhaps most central to the idea of the Messiah is from Deuteronomy 18. And it says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Like me, like Moses. He's the one speaking here. From your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. Just as you desire of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to him, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it. Of him. This promise that God was going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among the brothers to speak God's words, to command the very words of God to the people and require them to obey his words. And if they would not listen to those words, the Lord would judge them. This is what Jesus is drawing on. Moses would have believed in Jesus and these men have not. So it's easy for ourselves to put a to read this story and to think of ourselves in this courtroom or whatever and and view ourselves on the side where Jesus is standing and to be like, yeah, go get them, Jesus. Tell them about how your works bear witness about you. Tell them about who John truly is. Tell them about the Father and Moses. I want to challenge you to read Scripture differently than that. Just as we read the Old Testament, we should be reading ourselves into the people of Israel who oh so often fail time and time again, and yet God shows His tender mercies towards them. We ought to ask ourselves, how do we view these witnesses about who Jesus truly is? How are we like those religious leaders who just don't get it? They are reminded of John, 
the man who came and bear testimony about who Jesus was. And they were able to temporarily rejoice in his message. Who are the messengers in our lives that we rejoice in? The preachers and the sermons and the podcasts and the books that we love. But then how quickly are we to dismiss them when they strike too close to home? Or when their message doesn't really bring us to Christ, it just brings us to ourselves? And what about the signs that they saw Jesus do? Of course, we can look to those signs as people 2,000 years removed and try to explain them away. This fanatical, non-historical understanding of what the Scripture teaches certainly is a way that we can deny who Jesus is. But even more practical, how we can deny God's work in our lives. Forgetting that He's the one who's provided for us. He's the one that sustains us each day. The Father's Word, is it abiding in us? Have we heard his testimony? Perhaps most central to our time is the scriptures. How many Bibles do we have in our homes? I got a whole cart over there. We go to the scriptures. We fill ourselves with knowledge and theology. We learn about church history. We have the highest possible view of Scripture, which is good and right and true, and it was for them as well. This is God's revelation to us. And yet, if it doesn't draw us to Christ, if it doesn't bring us to Him to have life, then it's all in vain, and in fact, it'll be a witness against us. We don't have a lack of evidence. We don't have a lack of witnesses. We don't have an information problem. We have a glory problem. Remember verse 44? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? How can we believe what the Scriptures truly teach? How can we believe who Jesus truly is when we are so concerned about our own glory and honor and reputation and credibility? When our whole life is built around us and our kingdom. How often do we see ourselves as the sole arbiter of what is true? We believe what we want to believe and we deny what's inconvenient, painful, and difficult. Jesus didn't just come to give us more information. He came to give us the answer to our greatest problem. You see, we are the religious leaders in the story. We all have witnesses against us. Maybe it's not John and seeing the miracles, but God has been at work. God has bared testimony to his son. God has given us every possible thing to draw us to him. And yet, continually we deny Jesus' message. We deny him before others. We do not hear the Father's words. We rebel against his commandments. We sin day in and day out. We are like the people of God throughout the ages, always falling short. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And yet Jesus' information for us, Jesus' answer here isn't just to set us straight so that we can do better. 
He's not just setting the religious leaders straight, saying, look, you have too high a view of the Sabbath. Look, you have a wrong understanding of me. Jesus is getting to the heart of the message, and that is only through him can we have life. Everything, beginning with Moses writing it down in the book of Genesis until now, is all about Christ. As we have failed to honor him, as we have sought to get glory for ourselves, we have incurred great judgment. We are on the other side of the courtroom. We are accused by Moses and through the scriptures and everything that God has done in our lives. And yet, this is what Jesus has truly come to do. To bear upon himself those sins, that judgment, that wrath, and to give us the life. Our confession of of, uh, assurance of pardon from our confession of sin talked about God making him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. How glorious a thought that sinful men and women like you and I can be forgiven. That the perfect Son, Jesus Christ, came and lived this life, bared witness to what the Father was doing. executed so that we could have forgiveness. May that truth dictate everything in our lives. As we look to the scriptures, as we look to grow our church, may we never point people towards themselves, towards the glory of other people, but may it always be founded on Christ. May it always draw them to him. May we always declare him as the one through which we can have life. Not patting ourselves on the back but continually seeking his mercy and forgiveness, knowing that he has bought for us true life. May we resist the urge to seek honor and glory for ourselves and to make sure that we bring that honor and glory to him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us in our weakness to bring you the glory that is due to your name. Help us to see Christ as our only answer. Help us to cling to the cross for our forgiveness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.